I'm sure it would have been very sweet, Dr. Overly. It just wasn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Romans 15. No, I'd intended, as you can see from the bulletin today, to preach something else, to move on in Psalm 119. And in writing, as I mentioned this morning, the article for the editor of The Current, Reverend Stephen Pollock, thought that maybe it would be wise for me to preach this. Of course, I chose the hymn we just sang based on what I was going to preach before. And I thought, well, I should maybe contact Dr. Overley and see maybe we should change the hymn. And then I looked at, looking at the words and thought, no, that's fine. <laughs> Just leave it. God leading his people. And what comfort it is to believe that truth. Even when we don't understand. Romans 15. So... As I said this morning, I wish to deal with the subject of the call to preach. It's maybe in some ways similar if you're called to missionary service, or I'm speaking generally, there may be specific contexts that you're thinking about and you, you need clarification. Feel free to, to speak to me afterwards, but I trust this will be a help to you. Some of you read McShane's Bible reading as well. I know that because you've mentioned it in passing at different times. And if that's the case, then in the past week you read Matthew 9, which at the end of that chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ instructs his people to pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. And then immediately into chapter 10, we have those who have been told to pray for that now being commissioned to do the very work which is often what you do when you begin to take to heart a particular work and pray over it and say, Lord, raise up the laborers. Then sometimes you feel he's putting his hand on you and saying, yes, I'm answering this prayer. And part of the way I'm going to answer is I'm going to send you. And we obey then his leading and guiding in our lives. So it's important for us all to understand how vital this is that God leads men, leads women, guides them in service to him. And there may be a particular leaning here tonight. There is a leaning in regard to pastoral ministry. So I want to read two verses here found in Romans 15, and it will become clear a little later why I've referred to this particular passage. Romans 15 verse 20 Paul, well, maybe, you know, just, let's back up, actually. Let's go back to verse 13, read from there. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, You also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Elicrum, 
pardon me, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. Amen. And then the reading there. I want us to focus then on verse 20 and 21 in just a moment. And as I said, we'll see why in just, in just a second or two. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Gracious God, we're glad that you lead your people. What a fearful way to live when we imagine that we are the sovereigns of our own little vessels. Help us to not only submit to this truth, but to find it a rest for us in all the uncertainty of life. There are those here tonight that either presently are wrestling with the will of God concerning service, or will do in the future. I simply pray that this may be of help to them, and especially that it may be a help to us all, that we understand what is involved. Therefore, how much prayer there ought to be that God would raise up more laborers. The harvest is so ready for reaping, yet the laborers are so few. We have been reminded of this even concerning our brethren in Ulster and the need for more laborers to enter into the Whitfield College of the Bible. What is true there is true in Geneva, it's true, no doubt, in the seminary at Bob Jones and across all places of preparation. Raise up the laborers, Lord. Hear our prayers. We offer them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the most delightful yet dangerous questions that can be asked of the pastor is how do I know if I am called to preach? Delightful because it indicates an interest in the kingdom of God. One asking that question obviously has some inclination or desire to serve, and that brings delight because that's what we want to see in people. But dangerous because the response to the question, if inaccurate, could have catastrophic consequences, not just on the individual, but on the wider kingdom of God as well. They could be misled, they could do, wreak havoc and damage in various ways that would be irreparable or certainly tragic. So I feel, a, I feel a burden when I was asked to deal with this subject. I thought, well, that's fairly straightforward. I mean, I've come through this. <laughs> I've walked these, this, this path myself, and yet there's a recognition that God deals with everyone differently, and yet there are certain aspects of it that are uniform and the same or similar for everyone. What I've done here is not look at this, because sometimes when you read about the call of God, men will address it internally. What it means to sense that call in yourself, and they leave it there. How to test that feeling, how to know whether it's of God or not. These are all important questions, but it doesn't go far enough. And what I hope to do is to deal with it a little more holistically, looking at it, so that once we go through everything that we've dealt with, and you come to the end, if we can say that these are steps, if you follow through all these steps, only then, once you've traversed every one of these steps, can you definitively say, I have been called to preach. See, it's dangerous, it's dangerous to assume. And I've seen this, and it happens, and I'm sure people mean well. They will say, I've been called to preach. You know, young men who feel something of a draw toward pastoral ministry or missionary work, they say, I've, 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 I'm called to this. But there's more to it than that. 
And that's what I want to make clear. I know that there are some in this church, some even very young in this church, who are wrestling with whether or not God is, would have this for them in their future. I know that. And I say that publicly so that those of us older might pray. And pray for our children because God sometimes is dealing with them even when they're very young regarding what they should be doing with their life when they're older. And sometimes when a young person comes to you, they may be so young that it may be easy to dismiss out of hand. There's no possible way that you could be dealt with by God in terms of a call to preach or to serve. I don't want to say that we need to be very careful with that because we have in our denomination, and I'll name one, Reverend Jason Boyle, who sensed the call of God. I think he was saved around four or five years of age and sensed a call, some kind of impression upon his heart at eight years of age. He had to wrestle over that. He had his doubts and somewhere mid-teens I know that he wrestled with that and got a real sense of confirmation that yes, indeed, this is the will of God. But you imagine eight-year-olds in our congregation coming and saying, I feel a call to preach. Dealing with such an inquiry, even with an older person, is delicate. Dealing with it in one so young is even more delicate. We must be careful because we don't know what God is doing in the life. Uh, the text that, that came to our brother Jason and really impressed upon him as he wrestled over that as a teenager then was Matthew 4.16, the people which sat in darkness saw great light and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. And that was, that's the text that really confirmed as a teenager, this is what God would have me to do. It's important then that we steward this really carefully and our children carefully. So I say to you young people and those of you maybe thinking this way or open to this, that see yourself in a position similar to Moses. We are told in the Word of God in Acts 7 that Moses, while he was still in Egypt, supposed that his brethren understood that he would deliver them. So we know long before the, the event at the burning bush, which happens when he's 80 years of age or thereabouts, when he's 40 or younger, he already knows God intends me to deliver my people. But he wasn't ready. Aside from other things, he wasn't ready. He wasn't ready because he believed he could do it. He had a sense that God has put me here. I have the tools and the equipment and I can do it and I'm ready to do it. What Moses, with all of his gifting and all of the favor of God upon his life, needed to learn was that despite all that favor and all the indication of the providence of God leading and guiding his life, he needed to learn in a profound fashion what it is to sense a deep awareness of inability. You can't do it. And so he spends, it takes him 40 years so I hope it doesn't take anyone here 40 years, but if you can see yourself there in that backside of the desert stage, you know, if, you were, if I had a little Jason Boyle, eight years of age, feeling called to preach, say, young brother, see yourself on the backside of the desert. And you have this, something's happened in your life. You have this sense that maybe God has me for a particular service, but, but stay there until God meets with you. And despite a deep sense that you cannot do it, which is perhaps the first stage you need to experience, that God is sending you, commissioning you. I'm not sure if young children and young people at a certain age have the capacity to rightly comprehend their inability, which is why I say it just needs to be cautiously handled and they need to walk through that, maybe feeling that way, and yet, pray that they come to terms with their inability, that then they can wrestle before God and, despite that sense, carry on in the strength of the Lord. If the likes of Moses, Gideon, and Jeremiah struggled with the call of God, if the likes of men in history, eminent men like 
John Knox, the Scottish reformer, struggled with the call of God, it should rattle our confidence too. Shouldn't be so bold to imagine we have everything we need. It took Moses a long time to learn and to get into his soul that he was not capable of this work. So if you're a young man or a young woman, maybe not so young, wondering about this, let's deal with this subject. And for those of us who may feel there's no way that's for me, let us recognize what God needs to do in a life because there are a number of things. It's not just a matter of them sensing, yes, I, 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 would, I think I would fit this or I have a desire for this. There's a lot more to it. And God has to be with the individual every step of the way. As I'll tell you, who will be with them every step of the way? The devil, to discourage them and derail them. So I've titled this, Called to Preach? Question mark. Five steps. Five steps. Only once you go through all this, something like this, will you know for sure that you have this calling upon your life. And we have five words. First of all, inclination. Inclination. Are you inclined to some kind of public Christian ministry? Is that burden within your soul? Is there a desire to serve the church as a pastor, as a missionary? If that desire is there, let me say from the outset, it is commendable. It's commendable. It's not something to say, is this a form of pride in me? No, it's a commendable thing. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, If a man desire the office of a bishop, pastor, overseer, whatever word you wish to use, he desireth a good work. God doesn't condemn a man for desiring a good work. It's commendable. But you must have the desire. There ought to be an inclination. This feeling within the soul, within the being. A man has no business entering the ministry who has no deep inclination for it. You don't just fall into it and say, well, because there's nothing else better for me to do, I'm going to do this. There has to be a sense of, I'm inclined to this. I have a burden for this. I have a deep interest in this. And even beyond. This inclination should not simply be a feeling. It should almost, if I can describe it this way, I was trying to, in my mind, put myself in some of the scenarios where I have been. Where you're, it feels like you're being cornered by God. You're cornered. Like you're, you're, you're trapped in and it's, it's God who has cornered you on every side. And you can't budge or move or escape. That's what it feels like. You can't move. But God is presenting this and pushing this and driving this into your heart. It's like Moses in the, burning, the experience of the burning bush. He was kind of cornered, wasn't he? I mean, he was, it's like God is confronting this man and dealing with this man. In addition... It's not just this deep inclination. This deep inclination should be founded upon the Word of God. It should be supported by the Word of God. So if you, in our circles, if you come before us and you say, I have a call to the ministry, at some point along the way, you're going to be asked a question. Explain your call. And what will be looked for is what, what scripture, what, what part of the word of God is driving you here? Now, this has been criticized. And I, I actually remember an occasion when a missionary, we're in a context where a missionary or someone was about to go out as a missionary, was receiving questions from the congregation after the meeting. And they were asked, What's, what text is, what passage has God used to send you or make you feel inclined to go to this particular ministry? And the gentleman responded in a way where he said, I don't believe in that. And I'll tell you why. And explained how he basically explained, explained abuses of that kind of thing, where people had said, well, here's, here's a verse that God has given me, and they use it kind of like a weapon so that you submit and listen. Say, I've, I've got a verse from God, and you, you better submit. 
They said there are people who go around and do that. I've got a verse from God. And, and then they go and they never, it never comes to anything. They, they go out onto the field. They get financial support. They get all the help that they need to get there. And then after a couple of months, they come home. So that was his answer. And I remember really thinking about that afterwards. I was like, like wondering, what's, what's, what is the foundation like for, for the way we do it? We, we expect you to have a text. My entire life and my own experience has been that God has used his word. He has gripped me with his word that becomes this thrusting force driving you in a certain direction. Is it mystical? Have we gotten it wrong? That's why I turned to Romans 15. Romans 15, and I'm not going to take time to turn there. I'm going to assume the vast majority of you know the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus. You know what happened in Acts 9. You know how he is going about persecuting the church. And Christ comes and meets with him, floors him, blinds him. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And this whole experience where the risen Christ gets before, like uh, reveals himself to Saul. And if you read that passage, you will see that there are details there showing in terms of what the Lord says to Ananias about him. He's going to suffer many things for my name's sake. And if you go and read other testimonies of Paul, it seems that he knew he was going to be a light to the Gentiles the day of his conversion. You pull all the passages together, you realize that in that moment, the Lord made it clear that he would be a light to the Gentiles. But when he's arguing for his ministry in Romans 15 about being a light to the Gentiles, he does not refer to Acts 9. God has come to him. Christ has made himself known to him, and he, he knows. He, he, he's converted, he's regenerate, he becomes a genuine Christian, he wants to serve, he, he has some understanding of the capacity in which that service will be, but it appears. Look, at Romans 15, verse 21. Well, read from verse 20. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written... And here he quotes from Isaiah 52, 15. As it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. And it would appear to me that the apostle, in knowing his calling and coming to terms with it, that there were, there were passages, and this passage at the very least, came to his heart. Why would I, a Jew, circumcise the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews? Why would I go to the Gentiles? Why would I leave my people? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And wrestling over God's call with his life. And he, he's, he's praying and he's seeking God. And Isaiah 52, 15, at some point in his life, because that's, it just comes out of him here. He's explaining what he's doing and why he's there. And it just comes out of him. My text, Isaiah 52, 15. That's what grips my heart. That's why I do what I do. That drives me in my ministry. So I say to you, it is not mysticism to say to a man, you better know a word from God about what it is you're about to step into. The new God has spoken to you. That's what drives inclination. That's what, it's not just I'm gifted. People have said I'm very articulate. I, I've, I, I ranked first in debates at school or something. Very good. I'm happy. I'm glad that you've got ability. But that's, you, you need to have a word from God. So you ask me, preacher, what did God, how did God address you? Look, 960. Go thou and preach the kingdom of God. I still remember where I was. I still remember. I'm just reading my Bible. I was ready to serve God almost from the moment of my conversion. I mean, I was serving God from the moment of my conversion. Just going and serving and sharing the gospel. And a few weeks, months afterwards, talking to my pastor, asking him, how do you know if you're called? 
How do you know? And so you go and pray about it. See if God will speak to you. And that went on for a year and a half. A year and a half of praying. I would say almost every day. Praying, God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? And I'm reading my Bible. Reading Luke 9.60. It just, just hits me. Go there and preach the kingdom of God. It's like, it's like God, you cannot, can't begin to explain what that feeling is. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've had it in different contexts, but God is a word. It's like God has just illuminated a text for you. Well, do that in relation not to some matter of comfort or trial or difficulty you're going through, but specifically what God would have you to do with your life. And it's the same thing. God guides us, gives us a text, gives us his word to rest upon. It's the same reason why, same reason why I'm in Greenville. His word. His word. There are other aspects to it, but his word. Don't want to make this all about me, so I'm going to move on. With all that said, the inclination, even if you tell me you have a text, <laughs> it's not enough. Now, I will say here, right from the outset, I've read different men dealing with the call of God and so on. None of them yet improve upon Spurgeon's lectures to my students. I've read that volume, I don't know, a number of times. I've read segments of it multiple times. And if you're thinking about serving God, you, you have to, that's required reading. Required reading. You must read that book, especially the early chapters. Spurgeon, dealing with this whole aspect of whether or not a man is called to pastoral ministry, he says this in lectures, application was received some short time ago from a young man who had a sort of rotary action of his jaw of the most painful sort to the beholder. His pastor commended him as a very holy young man who had been the means of bringing some to Christ. And he expressed the hope that I would receive him, but I could not see the propriety of it. I could not have looked at him while preaching without laughter if all the gold of Tarshish had been my reward. And in all probability, nine out of ten of his hearers would have been more sensitive than myself. So Spurgeon says, no, you can't be. I can't look at you without laughter. <laughs> I mean, this, this might seem harsh, and perhaps there was some other work for him to do that wasn't so public or visible. Some way he could serve. There's many other aspects of labor in the kingdom of God. But Spurgeon uses this as an example. He gives others as well of just having to shut the door and say, I don't think you're called. Speaks of men stammering and not being able to speak clearly. Having impediments and saying, well, if God has called you, he will remove the impediment. Assuming there's no obvious impediment then, you have this inclination, this deep inclination, and God has gripped you by his word. Move on to the second step, qualification. Qualification. Go to Romans 12. Go back to Romans 12. You know verse, verses 1 and 2 very well. The consequence of the gospel... The response to what Christ has accomplished for us brings us to present ourselves. And that's for us all. Let's not miss that. Every one of us present ourselves to serve God. It's reasonable. It's, it's what we ought to do. And then he says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. We need to look at ourselves soberly. And he goes on to deal with gifting. People's place within the church. How it all works together and how it all functions for the glory of God. And so when I use the word qualification, moving on from the inclination to qualification, I mean all the natural traits, qualities of character and capabilities necessary for a gospel minister. The same would be true if you were a missionary. We're not looking for the finished article. We're not looking for something that's perfect. But whether a young man has the tools necessary for the work, 
Can we see in him the tools? Is, 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 is it there? It's like a carpenter looking at a piece of wood and saying that has potential. And because of his experience and what he's been able to do with other pieces of wood and what he has seen accomplished in the past, he can see a block of wood and say, here's what could, this could be this. Or someone with a diamond who knows how to polish diamonds and so on. You can see potential. That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for the polished diamond. You're not looking for the piece of furniture that might be made finally by that piece of wood. But you're looking, are the tools there? Can you see what is necessary for this kind of work? Is he spiritually minded? Is there an ease with which he speaks spiritually? Does he enjoy speaking about spiritual things? Does he bring up spiritual conversation? Does he possess a natural speaking ability, even if it's rough and unrefined? Is he interested in people? Is he comfortable in one-to-one situations? How about in a crowd? Look at the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They place an emphasis on character. If he doesn't show any of those traits, he's disqualified from the outset. see a man who's young and I've been called, but he's, he's still greedy. He's impatient. He's, he's contentious. There's a problem. There, there are other aspects as well. And these aren't disqualifying factors, but there's certainly things that should be illuminated and men be aware of, such as his general disposition, his, his manner, his, what, what's he like? Like, what's the impression when you meet them? Is he, is he, is he mournful? Is everything always negative? Is he, is he melancholy? Is he, is he joyful? Is he so joyful he comes across as insincere and foolish? I mean, these, these things matter. Is there a certain weight, a certain gravitas to him? One minister remarked, a disheartened man takes the heart out of everybody else. Unless he is resisted, he will drag the whole parish under his juniper tree. And so he's addressing something that should be looked for. Is this the kind of person who stands up in front of people and says, I'm sitting under my juniper tree, come and join me? <laughs> or, or does he, is he, no, there, there has to be, as I say, a gravity. But does he, does he carry himself with a sense of confidence born by the Word of God, trust in his God? I was just communicating with the Reverend David Park in recent days, and uh, really encouraging him, trying to, trying to encourage him, uh, just, just for his influence. All those, those few short years I was in that congregation, and part of the thing, like I said last week with that text, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, he, he has just lived that out. He's just busy for the Lord and always joyful and optimistic in what God is doing. And when you talk to him, he's telling you, He's telling you the positive things. He's immediately saying, here's what God's doing. When I communicated with him, I took contact with him, he just told me, such and such as brother got saved. And this is someone who's been prayed for for years and years and years, and I, I know the family. And he said, just got saved. And so this, this, is, this kind of buoyancy and confidence in the Lord is, is a good thing. If a man is constantly just trying to discourage everyone around him, it's not going to be helpful. And so it's searching, searching to ask you know, to, to think soberly. Just think about myself soberly in the context of, of God's work and in the, in the kingdom. How, like, am I qualified? Just asking that searching question. Am I qualified? A man may be qualified to teach. Like he has the gift of oratory. He has fluency. He is articulate. He is knowledgeable. But because of personality, he'd be best employed as a seminary professor. Nothing wrong with that. Perfectly fine. Others of tremendous qualities one-to-one in small groups may be more effective as elders than, than the primary teaching role as a teaching pastor. And then there are, other, there are other questions, other things that you need to think about in terms of feeling this inclination and then wondering if you're qualified. I'm just, I can't look at all these verses. I, I was going through these texts. I was thinking of these questions. Like, what would I say to a young man, to help him think soberly about what it is he's showing interest in. So I'll note just the references. Have you come to terms with the fact that the ministry promises a more severe judgment? James 3 verse 1. Are you comfortable with scrutiny regarding your words, behavior, love, 
attitude, faith, and purity, 1 Timothy 4.12? Will you work to improve every aspect of your craft, 1 Timothy 4.13-15? Especially when a weakness is highlighted by an experienced elder, Titus 1 verse 5. Do you possess the humility of teachableness, 1 Peter 5, 5, with a strength of character that will not wilt when ignorantly opposed, 2 Timothy 2, 3? Do you manifest a patience when you teach that will work hard to explain the truth simply, meekly, and with a recognition that God changes hearts, not you, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26? Are you prepared to not only hold but declare truths that become increasingly unpopular and cause you to be hated, 2 Timothy 2, 9 and chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And are you prepared to die for these same truths, 2 Timothy 4, 6? Do you have the heart to work long hours when the circumstances demand it, Luke 6, 12? And do you have the faith to go to sleep because you trust God for success more than yourself, Psalm 127, verse 2? Can you work with others, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10, and value men who will not mindlessly agree with everything you say, Proverbs 27, 17? Do you have the fortitude to do the right thing, have people misrepresent you, say nothing except to God, crucify your self-pity, and carry on into the battle to war a good warfare with a heart filled with love for God, His truth, and people? Exodus 5, 20 through 23, 1 Timothy 1, 18, Philippians 1, 15 through 18, 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Will you endure when your own familiar friends go after you, Psalm 41, 9, and even try to replace you, Numbers 14, 1 through 10? Are you ready to feel a crushing sense of your own shortcomings, Numbers 11, 14 through 15, Isaiah 6, 5, Jeremiah 1, 6, knowing that the only thing worse is not feeling it at all? John 15, 5. Why do I pose these questions? Because, as Spurgeon framed it, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. Don't. These questions are just the tip of the iceberg. If they're enough to put you off... <laughs> If just the question is enough, never mind the experience, then I count myself to have done you a favor as well as the kingdom of God. But if you're willing to proceed, despite what I have said, we come then to the third. We have inclination, qualification, then we have education. Education. Go to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. Just you see... Again, part of the work of the church and of ministers in every generation. Second Timothy 2, we'll read from verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. It's part of the work. If you have this divine compulsion to pursue the ministry, if you feel this inclination strongly and you soberly upon assessing yourself say, I, th I think, though I feel my deficiency, I think going by other things that are said to me and other opportunities that open up before me, that I, I, may, I may be able to pursue this, I may have the qual qualifications necessary, then you need an education. You talk to your pastor, talk to your elders, tell them about how you're feeling. Maybe they will see what you feel. Maybe they will see something else. It's important I say this for the benefit of the elders here and anyone who may enter into such conversation with someone, even parents dealing with your children, that we be optimistic regarding what someone can become by God's grace. We must be optimistic regarding what someone can become by God's grace. It's Naive 
unfair and downright folly to look at the best example of a particular craft that you can think of and then compare someone who's 22 who has no experience at all and say, he's not like him. I mean, come on. He's not like, of course he's not like him. Of course. He's nowhere close to him. He hasn't anywhere near the experience. He's maybe never even preached a sermon. There are all sorts of things. I mean, the, the, the way we handle this, we have to be wise and realize that what they need is experience, encouragement, opportunity. Let's test it. Let's see. Let's watch. Let's learn a little more and be optimistic. And yet we also have to be realistic regarding deficiencies. There are some things that we have to be honest about regarding things. Just, I, I don't think this is going to work. So we talk, we talk. And it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for a man who's getting to the stage where he's inclined and he thinks maybe God has gifted him to then, like, how can I fast track this? Like, how can I get from here to ordination as fast as possible? And that's a big mistake, huge mistake. It is, I don't know how many times I've had this conversation, how many times it came up, even, even in our Bible college, we would talk about this, about the men that we know who had no formal training. The aforementioned Spurgeon is the classic example. Spurgeon never went to college. Why is this necessary? Of course, when you ask that question, let me just say, you would be disabused of it, of the notion of whether or not you need education if you spent any time actually reading Spurgeon. Because if you read Spurgeon, it would quickly become apparent to you that you do not possess one-tenth of the scriptural knowledge and the mental powers of that unique man. It's, it's, I, was, I well remember standing in my bedroom reading a, Spurgeon, a sermon of Spurgeon's. I think I was assisting, I was assisting in the Balamani church at the time. And I was, I was reading uh, part voice exercises and everything, but I was reading aloud Spurgeon's sermons. I remember reading one day, and I'm, I'm reading, and I'm trying to enunciate, I'm trying to preach it as, as it is, they feel it. And as I'm going through this text and preaching this, and I just stop, and I start to cry. I, honestly, I start to cry, because this, this overwhelming feeling came on me where I, it just, I realized, I will never preach like this ever in my life. This is, I will never. It's so far beyond me. The power of language. The ease with which he can draw, not just scripture, but illustrations. And it's a, it's a force. It's a force. You aren't reading Spurgeon if you think you can avoid training like Spurgeon did. You aren't reading it. You would realize you're, it's like... Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, it makes no sense at all. Just read him, you will realize. And of course, Spurgeon realized this himself. And he realized that I can't make preachers, but I can help them. So he started his own pastor's college in fulfillment of the very text we just read. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. We are to commit these things to faithful men. So there's, need to, there's a need for education. Of course, again, I, I just, for your own encouragement, <laughs> maybe discouragement, I don't know. So let me just, a little bit of my own insight or my own experience. So I'm, I'm wanting to serve God. Within weeks, I'm going to my pastor saying, how do you know if you're called? And he tells me, you need to go and pray about it, and God will speak to you through his word. 18 months later, I have this sense that, yes, I think this is definitely, I feel this divine compulsion God has gripped me with his word. So that takes me from 2002 to 2004. So I'm going back to my pastor saying, I, I definitely think God is calling me to, to minister his word. That's 04. I was ordained in 2015. That's 11 years. 11 years. 
of traversing a path of preparation, an education that the Lord put me on. Eleven years. And I see men who want to, can I do this in six months, in one year, in two years? Think, why are you, why are you in such a hurry? Why? You think you're ready? <laughs> you think you know? No, you don't. Why? Why would you want to? You know, what if you went to a doctor and the doctor says, I, I took a fast track online medical course. <laughs> I became a doctor in six months. <laughs> you might sort of say to yourself, it's been a delight to have met you. I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, why? Why are you doing that? He's dealing with the body. You're dealing with the soul. Honestly, it is, we, we think about this in the wrong way. You need help. You need help. There needs to be education. Now, education, I think the Bible assumes a face-to-face -face education, face-to-face -face discipleship, if you want to use that word. You should seek that kind of environment. Not make it easy because it can be online, but where you can, have it face-to-face. -face. That's why the character qualifications of, of elders is, is mentioned and is important because the men who are standing ought to be known. The Bible speaks of them being known. You know them. And that's what's hard in our day because what, <laughs> you're dealing with, you know, Take whatever your favorite preacher is, whoever your favorite preacher is, from the past or the present, and you think, this is this, the best preacher I've ever heard, and you can listen to them, and you think they're wonderful, and perhaps they are, but you don't know them. You don't know them. And the pastor who is, what was it, one, one minister referred to them as, as paper pastors, the one who write, he writes books, he writes great books, it helps me, it's edifying. he's a paper pastor, he's not real, you don't know him. You don't know. So what the teacher you're to choose, you have to be in the presence of. When you start being in the presence of someone, you're going to see shortcomings. You're going to see strengths and weaknesses. You're going to see the balance. And part of it will be maybe discouraging to you because your heroes immediately sort of go up, evaporate before you. He's not as great as I thought he was. The other side of it, it will encourage you because he isn't this demigod. He's just a man, flesh and blood. That's exactly what you are. And this is what God can do. Do marvelous things through just flesh and blood, consecrated to Him. So, fourthly, I'll be more quick here. There is then, you've been educated, right? You have this inclination. You have then the qualifications, characteristics and traits necessary. Now you've got your education. The fourth is authorization. Go to Acts 13. Acts 13. Now this is just one example. You can see with Timothy, twice in the epistles Paul writes to Timothy, he speaks about the laying on of hands. And you see it here in Acts 13 as well. Now, this is slightly different in that Paul is already in the work. Paul's already given him, given, has given himself over and he is serving in the church and helping tremendously. Acts 13 verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. And you see these. You have these list of people who are there. They minister to the Lord, verse 2. They fast. And the Holy Ghost, I don't know how, I know exactly how this became clear to them, but in some fashion, the Spirit of God made it a unanimous, and all it may have been was a unanimous consent among the leadership. I think sometimes we read this and we imagine that, you know, there might have been some special revelation. If you go to Acts 15 and you see uh, the council at Jerusalem and they're having a discussion, they come to an agreement and they say, this is, this is the Holy Spirit has said this. This is the mind of the Spirit. And we have no divine revelation there. It's just a conversation of spirit-led men. So we have the oversight of the church, and they're, they're, they're serving God, they're fasting, waiting on God, and they come to this united sense agreement. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. 
What has always struck me is that Saul had an awareness of this for a long time, but he doesn't pursue it until the church authorizes. Everyone else sees it. They give their confirmation to it. So, a man has finished his education. He's progressed through that, those steps. And upon complete, completion, what will happen, if he's in our circles at least, is he will be examined. He will be examined in order that he may be or may not be authorized, or what we term licensed to preach. He gives a light, it's like you've a license to preach the gospel. Why do we do that? We are not saying that these men have the right to put men in churches. The local church still chooses their pastors, and that's a crucial step. We'll see that in just a moment. But there's this, there's this oversight, there's this protection to the churches. Think, for example, of how someone may grow up within a church and be loved by all, gifted, so on and so forth, and they decide, well, and this happens. You know, the father, maybe he's the son of the, the pastor, and the, he's getting older, and there's this natural thing, well, like, I'm going to bring my son to come in and just step in and take over from me. And that goes, everyone's on board, or at least some are, enough so that it carries on. But has he properly been tested? Has, it, has, it, has there been an objective examination of him? And so the purpose then of other pastors and elders, men ordained to the work, is that after he's gone through his education, he is examined. It would be a matter of kingdom stewardship for elders and pastors to test candidates, test them regarding doctrinal weakness and character flaws, like serious character flaws. So I, I'm on our examination board, and I, I'm part of that process of when men are thinking about ministry and then when they come out the other side, where we are asking some very uncomfortable questions. I'm prodding, trying to see. Is this man a danger? It's part of the reason in my own process, even though when I was trained in Northern Ireland and I received the call in North America, I wanted the process. I was licensed in Northern Ireland, but I also wanted my ordination to happen in Northern Ireland because they are the men who know me. It made no sense. It made no sense in my mind for, for me to go to North America and be ordained here by men who don't know me. It's like they're the, they've, they've, they've trained me, they've examined me, now they ought to lay hands and ordain me for this particular work. And it's critical. The process of licensing may differ for, between dom, denominations, but the, the process itself is crucial. The current pastors then and elders who are there, the presbytery or the local body, whatever it looks like, it might be an association of churches, they stand as references for the would-be pastor. He has proven himself by passing exams, maintaining a public testimony of Christian character. And these are men, they ought not to be given to partiality. They're examining honestly. The last thing they want is damage to the church. And so if they pass all of this, then they're authorized. They're given a license to preach. And once they have a license to preach, it's essentially saying then to the churches, if you wish, you may call this man. If you wish. That brings us then to the final step, invitation. You progress through these steps. A man is now considered a candidate for the ministry. He's been grilled and examined over years regarding his doctrine and knowledge of Scripture. He's been watched and observed. He is now licensed and churches looking for a pastor may vote, extend a call, and if he accepts the invitation that comes from the local church, he may be ordained to the Christian ministry by other ordained men. And once a constituted church calls you to be their preacher, and you're ordained to the Christian ministry and to preach the gospel in that pulpit, then, and only then, can you say definitively, I have been called to preach. 
God in his wisdom removes from us complete autonomy regarding this matter. It is clear that Timothy, for example, gets recommended to Paul. The people watching him grow up, see him flourish and his gifts flourish. And then when Paul comes along, he is recommended. Paul, here's a candidate. Paul takes him along, trains him up a little more. It's not just Timothy saying, I'm going to go and do my own thing. I'm going to go and plant a church. There is no embarrassment if a man does not become a minister of the gospel. None. I have far more respect for the man who wrestles with the question and somewhere along the way learns this is not for me than for the Christian man who won't even allow the thought to enter his head that God has forbidden. You're not allowed. You're not allowed, Lord, to call me to this work. I'm doing my own thing. I can, I can take my hat off to the man at least who is open to the idea. So what do you do? You seek the Lord. You don't stop seeking the Lord. You're asking this question, Lord, what will thou have me to do? You're always asking it in a posture of prayer. You listen to godly counsel. You be prepared to wait. You keep serving while you wait. That's one of the things that we get asked in Northern Ireland you come and stand before the men, you want to go into college, say, what are you doing for the Lord now? And the man turns around and says, I'm not doing anything. So, <laughs> if you're not doing anything now, sorry, you, you must misunderstand what this is about. I might say, not only seek the Lord, listen to counsel, be prepared to wait, keep serving while you wait, be open to your future looking differently than you imagined. The passage that comes to mind is Acts 16, where Paul is heading and the Spirit keeps hindering him from going where he thinks he should go. It doesn't always look the way you imagined. And so a man may prepare for ministry and then realize, well, well maybe I am more gifted for seminary instruction. Or, or maybe, maybe I'm more gifted for some kind of out in the middle of the nowhere missionary service. I don't know. I mean, it just depends. That can become clear, and you should be open to that. As we close, turn to 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Paul writes elsewhere to the Corinthians, necessity is laid upon me. This feeling of this burden that comes upon the soul. And there's a reason why it's, it's, it's a challenge. Look at verses 15 and following, 2 Corinthians 2, 15. We are unto God. Ask if you want to be this. We are unto God, a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other, the savour of life unto life. That is weary. In the ministry, you're going around dividing humanity. Your ministry divides humanity. Some will listen to your word, the gospel that you preach. And it will be a savor of life unto life. Others will not. And you will multiply their judgments upon their head. Add to the very eternal torment that they're going to suffer. So Paul then responds to this reality. Who is sufficient for these things? And then he says, We are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. These three thoughts from that final text. 
in the context of the fact that there are people who are in this business that should not be in it. They corrupt the Word of God. Every generation has people who corrupt the Word of God. They're doing this kind of work. They should never be there. They've corrupted it. Whether it's because they're doing it for money or they're doing it for prestige, they're, they love to have the preeminence, whichever thing you want to see. Whatever passage or characteristic or corruption that you see in the New Testament, they're, this is what they're doing. They're corrupting the Word of God. But Paul says, we're not like that. We have one motive, as of sincerity. I think he's addressing there his own, what, the driving impulse of his heart. The sincere reason why he's about what he's about. It's one motive, to glorify God. I'm driven by this. It's sincere. I'm not presenting that I, I'm doing this for God while at the other time trying to get rich or get popular or whatever. I, I'm genuinely all about just sincerely seeking God, right? One motive. One audience. But as of God, in the sight of God. That means though people hate him, all he's concerned about is what God thinks. And you're going to have to get there because if, you, if, you, if you're constantly moving by the thoughts of people, you will make shipwreck. Not a matter of if, but when. You will. You have to have this sense, God is my witness. I do this before God. God sees me in secret. God sees me in public. God knows. And I live before the audience of one. One motive, one audience, one subject. Speak we in Christ or of Christ. Our primary objective is exalting Christ. The whole goal is drawing men to Christ the whole ambition is making much of Christ. This, this is what drives us along. This subject. If you can say that you're willing to live that way, one motive, one audience, one subject, then God bless you. <laughs> I will be here to pray for you, to pray with you, and to help you in every single way I can. But if you can, with peace of conscience and rest, do something else, do it. Do it. It's fine. It's not wrong. But if you sense necessity has laid upon me, this is the only thing I can imagine myself doing. And obey the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Again, if you're wrestling with this subject, if you or wanting help, please just, just seek counsel. We've been through this. I might even add, speak to the Reverend John Wagner, or anyone that you know has experience in this area. This is about the rest of your life. This is about standing before God and knowing that you have done what he has called you to do. May the Lord give you clarity. May he lead you. May you be able to say at the end of your life, I being in the way, the Lord led me. Gracious God, bless. Bless thy word. We have sought to be honest before this people. We have sought to make it clear what we're dealing with in looking at the matter of ministry. It's no trifling occupation. It's no light matter. Those of us who are in the position, we feel it keenly. And sometimes it crushes us. 
And yet, the compulsion upon us keeps us going on. Thank you, Lord, that you have made it clear your grace is sufficient and your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So bless, may we see days ahead where there's a great raising up of laborers. We pray for more laborers. We ask for God-sent laborers. We pray it for here. We pray it for the United Kingdom. We pray it for Nepal. We pray it for Latin America. We pray across the world, raise up laborers. Bless our time. Before we go to our homes, may we enjoy the fellowship of the saints. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.